In progress. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a daily power parsha. Today is Friday, June twenty fourth, two thousand twenty two, and this week's Torah portion is Shlach. And because it's Friday, we're going to finish off the Torah portion. We're up to reading six for today. We'll do reading six and reading seven. And this reading has really a lot of uh, powerful mitzvot and ideas, especially on the heels of the conversation this week, about the major conversation about the spies, the sin of the spies, and their attempt to uh, dissuade the Jewish people from entering the land of Israel and the fallout from that. And we gave a deeper interpretation that they really had the spiritual integrity of the people in mind because they felt that this would be the most uh, spiritually successful way of doing things to remain in the desert with Moses. Nonetheless, that wasn't the proper approach. So after that, we read about um, the laws pertaining to sacrifices. Certain sacrifices require, uh, animal sacrifices require a meal offering and a wine libation along with it. So along with, let's say, a burnt offering, whether it's from a lamb or a ram or a bull, whatever, the different, anim- different uh, sacrifices, different animals. But along with those different animals, you would bring a certain amount of flour mixed with oil, put that on the altar, as well as pour some wine on the altar. That was r- the last few readings that we did, reading the end of reading four and reading five. Reading six, we're introduced to another mitzvah, the mitzvah of challah. Not eating challah Friday night, but challah meaning separating the dough when you're making, when you're baking bread, the mitzvah to separate some dough and give it as an offering, which we'll get to right now. All right, so let's jump in and take a look at reading number six. Torah reading for Shlach, reading number six, Numbers chapter 15, verse number 17. Let's jump in. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and you shall say to them, When you arrive in the land to which I am bringing you, so once again, God is reassuring them that even though they're in this freeze mode for the next 40 years or 39 years, specifically, even though they're not going in immediately, it's going to happen. So God says, when you come to the land that I am bringing you, and let's continue, the sentence continues, and you eat from the bread of the land, Bread of the land. By the way, the land does not produce bread, but you know how this works, right? The land produces wheat, and we make it into bread. So when you eat from the bread of the land, and in the Hebrew it's lechem, mi lechem haaretz, like hamotzi lechem, lechem is bread. So when you eat from the bread, and you when you go into the land and you eat of the bread of the, bread of the land, you shall set aside a gift for the Lord. Okay, you shall set aside a gift for the Lord. This is a very important mitzvah. The mitzvah of uh, the mitzvah of challah. Here we go. The first portion of your dough, the Torah says. Hi, Ray. Good to see you. Hey, the first portion of your dough, you shall separate a loaf for a gift. So when you're still at the dough stage, you separate some of the dough and you give that dough as a gift. As in the case of the gift of the threshing floor, so shall you separate it. There's a likeness to the, to the threshing floor, truma uh, gift uh, to the coin. So too is this gift as well, separated from the dough that you will use to bake your bread. Once again, the Torah says, from the first portion of your dough, you shall give a gift to the Lord in all your generations. Okay. Doesn't have to be five pounds. Uh, yes, there are, there's a criteria. Like everything in halacha, thank you, Ray, for pointing that out. Like everything in halacha, there is a minimum, maximum, you know, that you have uh, specifications. For example, when it comes to a sukkah, there's a minimum size that it has to be. It can't be smaller than whatever X size in order to be a kosher sukkah. At the same time, it can't be larger than Y size to be a kosher sukkah, whatever that size is. Right, So there are parameters for the mitzvah. When it comes to the mitzvah of challah, and again, I want to be very clear here. We refer to challah as the twisted braid uh, loaf that we eat on Friday night. That is not what it means in the Torah. In the Torah, challah is the, the part of the dough that you separate and you give as a gift to God, you give it to the Kohen. 
That is exactly what challah is. Again, we call challah the part that we bake and eat, even though challah is really the part that was separated and given. Okay, that's just how language uh, adapts and ideas kind of get, get lost or something on some level. But yeah, there are parameters and you need, you know, I don't know the exact numbers, I think four or five pounds. You need a, a decent amount of dough from which to separate. If you're making a little bit of dough for one little challah, you don't need to do this mitzvah. It has a limited parameter. Now we're going to pause here because... Can I ask you a quick question? Yeah, for sure. Um, so these days, like, we can, can we throw out that piece or we have to burn it? It needs to be burned. We can just throw it out, right? We no, it, needs to, it should be burned. Okay. okay. Ideally, it's burned. So what you do is, at least what we do here is you wrap it in foil, you put it into the oven on a very high temperature, you wait till it's like burnt, you can't use it anymore, and then... It goes its own way. But basically, it, it, the idea is to burn it, to not use it, to kind of like, that's the tradition. I will tell you, I'll be very honest, I've never really done it, personally. I don't usually bake uh, bread. Now, that's not true. I mean, I do bake, well, we have like a bread machine. And I, I feel like I'm getting very detailed, but I'll just bring you into my world. We have a bread machine, which is great. You put in like a few ingredients, like a few cups of this, a few cups of that, and a few liquid ingredients, you close the top, you hit a button, I don't know, four or five, six hours later, you get fresh bread. Now, I don't use it all the time. Most of the time, I'm just kind of like buying something, you know, over at the, uh, the kosher store or whatever. But, uh, you know, that's the extent. I've never, I don't think I've ever made uh, challah from scratch. Have I shaped challah as part of a thing? Yeah, I'm sure at some, some level I've helped out, you know, I've helped Leah with stuff. But I've never like A to Z made challah. Why am I saying this? Just because, like, exactly how it's done and when it's done. I, I mean, you know, I, I don't have the hands-on experience of actually separating the challah. Um, so maybe maybe it's a sign that I need to get into that. Maybe that's what's <laughs> one of the practical resolutions of today is I ought to do a, a from-scratch challah of the quantity, of the size of the, you know, that, uh, that would be obligated. But let's take a look. At Rashi, and let's get some additional details on the mitzvah and the conversation. Okay, here we go. Um, uh, this mitzvah is prefaced by God saying, "When you arrive in the land." So Rashi says, "This coming into the land differs from all the other comings in the Torah." For with the other scripture says, "When you will come in," in the singer kisavo or plural kisavau. Therefore, all of them learn a particular law from each other. Since in one of their cases, Scripture specifies that it applies only after inheritance and settling in the land, it therefore applies in all cases. But here it uses the word bevoachem, not kisavau or kisavau, but bevoachem, which means as soon as they arrived there and ate from its bread, they were obligated to separate a portion of the dough. Basically, let me just explain what Rashi is saying. This is a, a rabbinic derivation. There are 13 hermetical rules of Torah interpretation. And uh, this is some of, the, and, and here we see some of them at play in, in our context. There are a number of mitzvot that can only be done in the land of Israel, or at least starting from that point. Most of them only began historically once the Jewish people, uh, n- sorry, did not start the moment they stepped foot in the Holy Land, but after 14 years. Why 14 years? I think I mentioned this in a recent class. It took them 14 years to conquer and settle the land. It took 14 years. So most, the vast majority of Israel-connected Israel, Israel mitzvot only began after those 14 years. Rashi here is clarifying that challah is different because the Torah uses a different, uh, different verbiage, different language when referring to entering the land for this mitzvah which tells us that this mitzvah, challah, separating the, the, a piece of the dough from your challah, from separating a piece of the dough from the dough, a.k.a. challah, so that mitzvah begins right away, not only after 14 years. You would do it day one, as soon as you're baking bread, this mitzvah is obligatory. And how do we know this? Why is it different? Again, the language that the Torah uses is, is, is unique here and doesn't use it in any other case, so here we have a unique law. Let's continue. The first portion of your dough. So Rashi explains, when you need an amount of dough that you are accustomed to kneading in the desert. 
Oh, and immediately we get to what Ray said. Rashi says that when it says the first portion of your dough, it means the dough or the amount that you are familiar with. And how much is that? Quote, they measure with an omer. Right? How much mana do they collect every day? One omer. So the equivalent amount of your dough that you're obligated to take challah from is the equivalent amount of an omer. An omer per head. Now, great. I, I'm going to go to Amazon.com or Bed, Bed Bath & Beyond or Target or whatever it is, and I'm going to look for an omer measuring cup. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Not, not going to happen. But I think Ray, Ray is, it's about, I think it's about five pounds. And if I'm not mistaken, five pounds is a full bag of, like a standard bag of flour. Is that correct? A five-pound bag of is a standard bag. It was. Now they've lowered it to four pounds in a bag. That's the other way inflation works. Instead of raising the prices, we'll just make everything a little smaller. Right. And hopefully people will notice. I'm telling you, I bought, I'm like, you know, I can't be 100% certain, but I'm pretty certain. I bought a, you know, I had a package of potato barrecas. I don't know, if like frozen bake-at-home potato barrecas, which reminds me, one second. Shia... Barrecas. Anyway, I, I bought a, I bought a uh, package of barrecas. I'm talking about barrecas, so it reminded me that you should probably check on them, right? You want to say hi? Why not? There we hi go. There. Hi. Hi. <laughs> All right, you're good. Go check on the food so it doesn't burn. Anyway, I, I'm. T- they they now have twelve in a pack. I'm pretty sure there was like. 14 or 16, not that long ago. But I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I, I, I uh, certainly am open to being wrong. But anyway, so flour used to be five pounds. Maybe now it's four pounds. But there needs to be a certain amount. And Rashi specifies that at least in ancient measures, it was an omer. You shall separate back inside. You shall separate from its first portion. What does that mean? That is to say, before you eat the first portion from it, you shall separate one loaf as a gift for the sake of the Lord. Again, one loaf means the equivalent that you would bake into some sort of loaf. It could be a small amount. And how, what is a loaf? Rashi says in Old French, turtle. A sort of cake. A round loaf of bread. In modern French, I don't even know how to pronounce that. Tourteau. Okay. As in the case of the gift of the, of the threshing floor, Rashi, in which no amount is specified, but unlike the gift taken from the tithe given by the Levites, the kind of which an amount is specified. In other words, how much dough do you take as the gift? How much? This size, this size, this size, like how much? Torah doesn't specify. However, the sages did specify an amount for the householder, one twenty-fourth of the dough, and for a baker, so that's for the householder, for the... For the um, for the at-home baker, one twenty-fourth of the dough, and for a baker, for a professional baker in the bakery, one forty-eighth. Interesting. Okay, let's continue from the first portion of your dough. Why is this verse stated? Is not verse twenty sufficient? It seems like uh, verse twenty-one and verse twenty are saying the same thing, right? From the first portion of your dough, the first portion of your dough. What's going on here? It's the same thing. So Rashi says because it says. The first portion of your dough. Oh, sorry, no. Uh, um, oh, yeah, yeah, because it's the first portion of your dough. From this, I understand the first one of the doughs. However, Scripture teaches us from the first a part of the dough, but not the entire dough. So you might have thought that if you're making different batches of bread, right, then maybe the whole first batch has to be given. No. So the second verse says, from the first portion of your dough. Not the entire first dough, a piece of that first portion of dough. Again, you can understand this different ways. If you're only making one batch of, if you have a big mixing bowl and you're making one large batch of of challah loaves, right? So, So then it could either mean one piece of that dough, or let's say you're making lots of bowls of challah for lots of challahs. So maybe it means a whole bowl of dough has to be given as a gift. No, from the first portion. It's not the whole first portion, it's from, from that first bowl. Okay, again, just Rashi uh, showing us how the specifics are derived from the nuances of the verses. You shall give a gift to the Lord 
since no amount is specified for the dough portion, which is the challah, again, challah is not the, at least biblically, is not the part that we eat. It's the part that we give. So since no amount is specified, it says you shall give. The gift should be an amount which, you, which can be considered a gift. By the way, in halacha, you should know that it says regarding a gift, gifts in general are generous. Why? What does that mean? The, you know, the assumption is that if no amount is specified, the assumption is it's going to be a, a nice amount. Why? Because kol whoever gives, gives with a good eye. What does it mean a good eye? A generous eye. If, you know, why would you give if you're not going to give? If you're giving already, the assumption is that you're going to give a decent amount. So thus the Torah doesn't have to specify because if you're giving and it says you should give, so it means obviously that you should give an amount that is um, honorable. Okay, now uh, Rashi certainly does not get, does not drill into all of the laws of challah. That itself would be a very interesting topic. I don't know that I am ready right now to uh, give you you know, a, a top 10 list of things you need to know when, uh, when, when jumping into this mitzvah. Uh, yet, it, this certainly can, can open us up to, uh, to, um, to exploring it more and to integrating into our lives. Whether it's encouraging us to bake challah and therefore bake bread and do the mitzvah challah, or whether it's, if we're already doing it, but maybe we're not separating it or we're not burning the, the piece, maybe it's, uh, it's, it's, it's trying, trying that out for size you know, at least once, and seeing how that, uh, how that feels for us. All right, let's continue verse number 22. And if you should, and if you should err, and not fulfill all these commandments, which the Lord spoke to Moses, all that the Lord commanded you through Moses from the day on which the Lord commanded, and from then on, for all generations. So we're now talking about a case of error. What happens if people make a mistake? When? Whenever, from the beginning till now. It's like, what happens if someone makes a mistake? Now, understand that the context here is not someone who uh, um, intentionally violates the law. We're talking about someone who makes a mistake. So now the Torah gets into different scenarios. If because of the eyes of the congregation, it was committed inadvertently. In other words, everyone was under the impression that something was okay, when in truth it wasn't. Or everyone was under the impression, anything, but, but it was a collective, I, I don't mean this in a, in a negative way or derogatory, it was a collective ignorance, or a better word, it was a collective misunderstanding. Um, so then the entire congregation shall prepare a young bull as a burnt offering for a pleasing fragrance to the Lord. With its prescribed meal offering and libation, we spoke about that um, yesterday, Right, that every sacrifice comes along with a certain amount of flour and and um, and oil and wine. So you bring the young bull as a burnt offering, the meal offering and libation, the wine libation, and one young he goat for a sin offering. So we have a burnt offering, which is a gift. You have a meal offering and libation, which are the accompaniments, and then you have a young he goat for a sin offering. The Kohen shall atone on behalf of the entire congregation of the children of Israel, and it shall be forgiven them, for it was an error, and they have brought their offering as a fire offering to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord because of their error. So again, we're talking about a collective lapse, collective mistake. So you not, no, the Torah's not saying that everyone has to bring these animals. It's on behalf of the people, one, one young bull, the meal offering and libation with that bull and one young he goat as a sin offering. Uh, my, my understanding is, my recollection is that a, that a sin offering does not come along with the meal offering and libation. Are you with me on that? Most offerings, most animal offerings came along with flour, oil, and wine, but not the sin offering. Why? Because those came along to beautify the gift. This is not a gift. This is... Uh, you know, this is a sin offering. So we don't doll it up. We don't make it look all, you know, all fancy, schmancy. It's, uh, it's a sin offering. It's, uh, it, we, we, we keep it for the, for the functionality. All right, let's continue. The entire congregation of the children of Israel and the proselyte who reside with them shall be forgiven for all the people. 
were in error. By the way, we say this on Yom Kippur, this verse. We actually say it three times. When? We say this on Kol Nidre night. At the onset of Yom Kippur. When the ark is open and everyone is gathered for that beautiful and hallowed sacred prayer. This verse is recited three times. The entire congregation of the children of Israel and the proselyte who resides with them shall be forgiven for all the people were in error. And we basically declare to God on Yom Kippur, <laughs> what do we know? <laughs> we, like, yeah, we made a mistake. We goofed. We goofed. Forgive us. Not to downplay it, but the idea is to ask for that forgiveness. And we say, God, for sure you'll forgive us. In fact, the verse says that they shall be forgiven because the people were in error. All right, let's do some Rashi's. And then let's jump into reading number seven and have the opportunity to close it out. All right, let's go. Hey, Mark, welcome. All right, here we go. Um, If you err and not fulfill, idolatry was included in all the commandments for which the community brings a bull as a sin offering. But here, Scripture removes it from that category to apply it to the lava bull for a burnt offering and a hego for a sin offering. So it's got a different, uh, different categorization. Idolatry is not one of these. Um, if you made a mistake, whoops, and committed idolatry, that is on a, on a bit of a different, uh, a different um, uh, compensation metric. I don't mean compensation financially. I mean like what to do. If you err. Okay. Scripture speaks of idolatry or perhaps only to one of the other commandments. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I misread the the first Rashi. If I'm not mistaken, what Rashi is saying is that this, what the Torah is talking about is actually idolatry. Not any other thing, but specifically idolatry. When it says, if you should err and not fulfill all these commandments, what does that mean? It's referring to idolatry. So Rashi here clarifies it. Scripture speaks of idolatry. Or conversely, perhaps, you could argue only to one of the other commandments. Scripture therefore states all of these commandments. Right? If you err and not fulfill all these commandments. So one commandment, which is equivalent to all the other commandments. Just as someone who transgresses all the commandments, casts off the yoke of Torah, violates the covenant, and acts brazenly toward the Torah, so one who transgresses this, this commandment, casts off the yoke, violates the covenant, and acts brazenly, which one is this? Which one is the cardinal sin of Judaism that is like the worst of the worst? This is idolatry. Which the Lord spoke to Moses, i.e. the first two commandments, I am the Lord your God, and you must not have any other gods. These were heard by the word of the divine, as it says, uh, once did God speak, but we heard him twice. We heard them twice. So the first two commandments were heard from God himself, and they speak about the prohibition against idolatry, and uh, that's why this is such a big deal. All that the Lord commanded is teaches us that anyone who acknowledges the truth of idolatry is considered as if he has denied the entire Torah and the prophecy of the Torah. So if a person accepts idolatry, It's like they deny the entire Torah. It's a big deal. As it says, from the day on which the Lord commanded, and from then on, there's the whole Torah is thrown out the window when somebody uh, commits idolatry. It's a a complete act of of, uh, Torah treason. All right, now if because of the eyes of the congregation was committed inadvertently, what does that mean? The eyes of the congregation. If because of the leaders, literally eyes of the congregation, this transgression was committed inadvertently, for they, the leaders, erred and ruled concerning one form of service, that it was permitted to worship an idol in this manner. Look at that. So, you know, when it comes to an idol, depending on what's going on, you might not be uh, um, guilty of, of serving the idol if, you do it in, if you're doing something weird 
with the idol and not its typical form of service. Well, what if the, the, the leaders of the congregation, the heads of the court or the leaders of the congregation, they say basically that, yeah, you can, this is fine. It's not considered idolatry. And then it turns out they were wrong. It is idolatry. Uh-oh. Now everyone did it. I mean, many, many people did it. So that's a problem. Um, okay. Uh, this is for a sin offering, lechatas. This word is missing the, the letter Aleph in the Hebrew side. Because this sin offering is different from all other sin offerings. In the case of all other sin offerings mentioned in the Torah, which are brought together with the burnt offering, the sin offering precedes the burnt offering. As it says, he shall make the second one a burnt offering. But this one, the burnt offering, precedes the sin offering. Okay. Yes. Can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't understand that. How how would you uh, how would you uh, perform idolatry by error? Yeah, or in error. I don't understand. So that. basically, it's like this: back in the day, in the times of when when pagan worship was all the rage, so there were many many different idols, and every idol had its unique form of service for example and i don't want to get get gross here but i'm going to get a little okay there was an idol that's referred to in the torah by the way we're going to get to it in a few weeks called the pa'ar the baal pa'ar it was like a it was like an idol the midianites the moabites they worshiped this idol the way the way it was worshiped is that the person for lack of better terms Relieve themselves. They relieve themselves in front of the idol. That was the that was the way that this idol was worshipped. How they worship it? What's the origin? What's the origin? The original people they were so in awe of the idol that they couldn't hold them. They they physically lost control of their of their bodies. And then the next generation they saw that the parents did this, so that became like the the way the way to worship it. So that became, that became the, you remember when Pinchas speared the Jewish leader and the Midianite princess who were, uh, yeah, cohabit, and that was after Balaam tried to curse the people and they said, well, it's not working, so just get them to sin, uh, so have the, 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 the Midianite women seduce the, the Jewish men, and then, you know, at that time, before they say, if you want to, if you want to continue, please deposit another quarter. They would say, if you want to continue, then uh, like the old payphones, you have to what, worship this idol. That's how that idol was worshipped. So now here's a question. And I, I don't want to, again, it's, it's uh, look, it's, it's halacha. So what if you did that, not you, what if someone did that, the same form of worship, but for a different idol? Would it be considered to be worshipping that idol? The answer is no. In other words, if you do the same thing, in front of idol Z, it's, it's, not, it's not called idol worship because that's not how that's worshipped. Are you with me on that? So you can re- Your mileage may vary. Do not try this at home. One could relieve themselves in front of a different idol and not be violating the prohibition against idolatry because no one does it. No one does that. So that's not considered worshipping the idol. Well, what if the Sanhedrin, what if the rabbis say, so they're asked the question, you know, is this considered a form of worshiping this idol or not? And they say, no, it's fine. Turns out they were wrong. People do that. Ah, bum, bum, bum. Now what? So you asked for a scenario in which you worship the idol inadvertently. So, because we tip, by the way, Halacha says, Rambam writes this clearly, that if you bow down to any of the idols, even if that's not the usual way, bowing down is the universal, is the universal sign of worship. So if you bow down, you're out. So you can't say, I didn't know. Bow, bowing down is a problem. What we're talking about here is, you know, if you have, and remember, in the times of the pagans, pa- pagans, yeah, pagan worship, paganistan, maybe we'd say in Yiddish, the, 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 the paganistan, when they were, when they were, they had so many different idols, each one with its own little, uh, you know, its own little portfolio, but how, to, how, how it works, instruction manual. If you, if you use one for the other, it's not considered idol worship, unless you bow down and then it's... So what happens if the rabbis, if the sage, if the eyes of the congregation, they mess up? It happens. The error is human, right? So, so they messed up. They said that this form of, of 
this behavior is not considered worship for that idol, and it is. Whoops. So you, then you got to bring the, this series of offerings. And that's what, just to show you, hopefully in the words, let's see if it checks out what I'm saying. Um, yeah, they erred and ruled concerning one form of service, not bowing down, but a specific type of service, that it was permitted to worship an idol in this manner. And I know what you're thinking. To worship an idol is never permitted, but it means that you can do that in front of the idol and it's not considered to be idol worship. That's what they said. They were wrong. Everyone goofed. And now you have to bring uh, a, burnt, um, a burnt offering and a sin offering. Okay. Um, bull is a burnt offering and the he goat is the sin offering. Okay, we got it. Let's continue reading number seven. Let's slide over to tomorrow's reading and close out Shlach. But here we go. That all the above was if the entire congregation led by the leaders ended up committing an act of idolatry inadvertently. But Numbers chapter 15, verse 27. But if an individual sins inadvertently, this is no longer the entire congregation, blah, blah, blah. This is an individual sinning inadvertently. He shall offer up a she-goat in its first year as a sin offering. Different protocol. Before we had a burnt offering and a sin offering. And it was a male, male animal. Here's a she-goat in its first year, a young she-goat as a sin offering. And the Kohen shall atone for the erring soul, which sinned inadvertently before the Lord, so as to atone on his behalf or her behalf, and it shall be forgiven him. One law, once again, I mentioned this uh, maybe yesterday, I think so, that uh, we find that Torah emphasizes again and again and again. There's one set of rules. It's that we don't, it's not, it's one, one law. One law shall apply to anyone who sins inadvertently from the native-born of the children of Israel and the proselyte who resides among them. Whether it's the native-born or the one who has joined recently, it's the same law. Inadvertent is inadvertent, and there's an app for that, or at least there's, a, there's an offering for that. But, uh-oh, now we get a little bit more serious. But if a person should act high-handedly, literally in the Hebrew, it's biyad rama. Biyad is yad, yad is hand, and rama means high. A high hand. What does that mean, high-handedly? I don't know if anyone... Is that even a phrase in English? I don't know. Yes. It does? Yeah. It is? What does it mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. A, does it mean arrogantly or does it mean yeah. bra- brazenly? Chutzpah? Arrogant. Arrogant. Arrogant, Arrogant chutzpah. Okay. Biyad Rama means like, that's it. So a person should act high-handedly, whether he's a native-born or a proselyte. In other words, somebody who doesn't make a mistake and worship an idol. Again, again, let me, let me pause here for a moment. We have already two scenarios, and this is the third. Two and one. Okay? The first two scenarios were regarding mistaken idol worship. Whether the entire congregation was misled to believe that this was fine, and it's not, or an individual thought that this was fine, and it was not. But now we're talking about somebody who doesn't make a mistake. No, 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 no. This person knows exactly what they're doing. They know exactly that this is forbidden. They know that idolatry is wrong. There's no question about it. It's very clear and it's very obvious. Here we go. But if a person should act high-handedly, whether he is a native-born or a proselyte, he is blaspheming the Lord, and that soul shall be cut off from among its people, kare's soul incision. For he has scorned the word of the Lord and violated his commandment. That soul shall be utterly cut off, for its iniquity is upon it. Now we're going to pause here, do some Rashi's, and that will set us up for the final. Uh, no, not actually the final. There's still two more pieces. Um, we're going to get to the Makosh. Yeah. Quick, quick observation. Sure. That um, retreat in the mountains. It's called something Ramah, means something that's Ramah. Yes, yes, Ramah It's so funny that you mentioned that. I literally got back this morning from a camping trip in in the North Georgia mountains. The kids are in a two-week camp, part of the school. It's like school camp, whatever. And so they took them for the last like day or two, they took them up to the mountains. So I joined the kids. Oh my gosh. Has anybody, anybody go camping? Is any, are there any campers amongst us? Yeah, you guys are campers? 
Okay. I mean, I go on occasion. I'm not like I'm not like I don't. I'm not a guy that has his you know gear packed up and ready to go. But I will tell you, as honest, I mean, as as I am sitting here today, one a.m. this morning, I was in a tent with my with three of my kids, Shalom, Shaya, who's not tubing. The other kids are tubing. He wasn't whatever. He wasn't feeling well. So Shalom, Shaya, and Ellie. I'm in a tent with them, and the next thing you know, there's a bear. Not one bear. There are two bears. I, I know you know my bear stories. I, for some reason, when I'm out in the woods, the bears come a-running. No, but this time, there was a, a, a decent-sized group, probably about 30 people, mostly kids and chaperones. Yeah, legit. Um, a, so, you know, we were, the, adults were, the adults were cleaning up. We're gonna own, I'm going to own this now. We're going to own this. The adults are going to own this. We were cleaning up, and the thought was, well, more or less, does it need to be spotless? I mean, look, if we made steaks and we use like a flexible, you know, like a portable cutting board, right? And we just, for example, and we left it out on the, the tables with the still with the pieces of me, like small pieces of me, but like, that, you know, but like in low juice, would that attract bears in the language of one of the chaperones um, who are at the edge of starvation and survival? Would that attract them to our campsite? The answer is yes. The answer is a resounding yes. And uh, in fact, we had two bears that were there. The kids woke up. It was a party. Um, Ellie, once, oh, sorry, not Ellie, wrong kid. Shia, I feel like I want to corroborate this. Shia, it's otherwise occupied. You can't hear me. Um, anyway, so there were bears. So and, and so we all waited. We all um, hung tight, if that's the right word, the right expression. And they were there for like a few hours. We could, you could hear them. They were making bear sounds. No, legit. I mean, th this is a 100% true. Um, I did not sleep much last night. I'll just tell you that much. I was Googling. I, I had somehow T-Mobile. I don't have service like in my house. I'm kidding. But, but there, I, somehow I have service. So I was Googling like what to do if a bear comes to your campsite at night. And I'm thinking like, how is Google going to help me in my whatever? But anyway. So, uh, no, everything was fine. It all worked out. The bears left. What they walked away with, this might shock you, it might not shock you. And I'm telling you, again, this is, this is not a story. It's not I fished and I caught a, you know, this is legit story. They walked away with three packages of kosher Kroger cookies. And when I say cookies, I mean the chocolate chip cookies that are in the plastic clamshells. You know what I'm talking about? The plastic clamshell Kroger cookies. They didn't open them and leave crumbs. Somewhere in the forest, there are bears sitting around their little, I don't know, bear cave with a little lid open saying, pass the milk and dipping cookies in. Three whole entire packages of cookies were swiped. They do not exist in the campsite anymore. In fact, one of the other chaperones, his tent was three, I don't know, maybe three yards, like uh, between five and 10 feet from where the food was. This guy, he was like, yeah, he was, yeah, that was legit. Anyway, um, so he was able to see, he was able to, huh? Did the bears turn into his tent? No, 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 no. Bears did not touch the tents. And ironically, they had to go back and find some milk. That's, that's what I, that's exactly what I think. And I'm assuming that they waited six hours and ate it for breakfast because 1 a.m. they ate the meat or whatever. They also went through the garbage and ate the bone, like chicken or chicken wings. They went through the bones. They made, they, they, they got, listen, clearly we got some more camping uh, 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 um, skills to, to hone up on because you don't leave your gar as I've known, but now have solidified in my knowledge, you don't leave the garbage right there in the campsite, nor do you leave like grease and stuff and apparently cookies um, available. Anyway, the point is that I'm assuming that if it was a- You never had your tents close, Rabbi Ari, you never had your tents close to where there's food, never. Well, you know, we, actually our tent was not that close. Yeah, okay. yeah. I felt like if, no, no, we were, we were actually the furthest tent from the food. Yeah, I was going, well, listen, I, I didn't want the kids to wake up because like this was, we realized this and like I was hoping the kids would sleep through it. That didn't happen. 
Um, some kids did. Some kids did. Some kids slept through the whole thing, and they were told this morning, and they found oh, the bear, bears were here. Did you take pictures? No, I did not take pictures. No, 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 no. No. I asked the guy who was there. I didn't even look. I didn't look out my window. I did not look out my window. I could have. I could have just peeked out. I was like, no. You could hear it. You hear a bear. It's like, it's like heavy breathing and grunting. Yeah. It's like it's like making a bear. It's just straight up. It sounds like a bear. But you know my other story. Like I was walking with my son, and there was a bear. It was a Passover a few years ago in the Catskills. Anyway, that that we had no food. We were just walking from Shul. Uh, more of the story. So funny. Oh, I even took a picture of it. Took a picture because this morning I realized that there was a log. As you enter the campsite, there's a log, and on the log. There's a little graphic that says, bears and you. A little warning, a little warning label over there. It says, uh, human encounters with black bears are becoming more common in, the, in this forest. No kidding. Your personal safety and the bear's welfare depend on the ability and willingness of people to follow these simple safety rules. Well, guess who did not do that? Odor attracts bears. Never leave food. Pop. That's what they say in Pittsburgh. Pop, beer, canned goods, toothpaste, chapstick, dog food, or garbage unattended. There you go. Do not leave food, dirty dishes, empty food containers, coolers, or cooking utensils out or, in a, or stored in a tent. We violated both bear rules right there. Both bear one and bear two bullet points we violated. Seeing a bear is a memorable experience. But remember, you are a visitor in their home. Let's all work together to avoid confrontations. I told my kids when we saw the sign this morning that you had a memorable experience. That was my line, right? Seeing a bear is a matter of which, although we didn't see it, we heard it, and we stayed up. Um, okay, so back to the story. I don't know how we got to bears and to, I don't know, but it's... Uh, Can I tell Rabbi Ar? Yeah. Quick, quick story. You know, black bears, are, are, they're omnivores, but they're pretty much scavengers. Now, grizzly bears are much larger, you know, uh, and they're, they're man-eaters. Oh, yeah. and, there's a sto- and the story of, of the Jewish man who's, who's, out, who's out camping out west and this huge grizzly bear who weighs over a thousand pounds, he sees it and he runs to get away from it. He climbs a tree, the bear climbs a tree. He can't get away. The bear is looking right at him and it reaches behind his back and puts a keeper on. He says, thank God, a Jewish bear. How lucky. He hears the bear say, Hamotzi lechem in ha'or. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> It's a great joke. The, it reminds me of the other one. The other one is where the, guy, the bear comes to a tent and the two guys that are camping start running. But before the one guy starts running, he ties his shoe. He says, the guy says, why are you try, tying your shoe? You're not going to outrun the bear. So he says, I'm not trying to outrun the bear. I'm trying to outrun you. Anyway, but that's, that's a dark, that's a much, I guess they're both dark. All right. Anyway, uh, thank God all worked out. I'm here to tell the tale and uh, um, all is good. So back inside. Let's get back to idolatry of all things um, and this is not about an individual who sins inadvertently right so uh, Rashi again we're still on topic what is the sin it, we're still in the same genre worshiping idols so you have three scenarios whether the entire congregation makes a mistake or an individual makes a mistake or now an, uh, um, uh, an individual oh yeah no, no sorry the entire country makes a mistake, or the individual makes a mistake. That's what we're. This is the second case. Uh, so, he, so this person brings a she goat in its first year. Uh, for other, for any other transgressions, an individual could bring either a ewe lamb or a young she goat, male or female. But in this case, Scripture designates a she goat for it. Okay, there you go. God says that's what it is. High-handedly, intentionally, um, is blaspheming. Um, ba, 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 ba. Someone who blasphemes is subject to spiritual excision. The word of the Lord, the warning against idolatry was heard directly by the word of the divine. The rest was by the word of Moses. Um, okay. All right. Let's let's move on to the. Oh, to, Rabbi Aaron, what do you got? No, that, that's a great Rashi. It says the word of Hashem. Rashi says the prohibition against idolatry was delivered directly from the mouth of the Almighty and the rest from the mouth of Moses. Right, it says they heard directly the first two commandments and with those two commandments, Parcha Nishmas and their souls left their bodies and they had to be revived. After the first two, they said God, they said to God, with all due respect, let's hear it from Moses. 
and uh, and they heard God, but they, they heard God, but they didn't hear it directly. They heard it through by Moses. Now let's continue. Let's get to the story of the Makoshesh. This is the wood gatherer, the man gathering wood, known as the Makoshesh Eitzim. Uh, he is the gatherer. Let's go. Um, let's hide Rashi. Okay. When the children of Israel were in the desert, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Uh-oh. Those who found, and that's a violation of Jewish law. Those, uh, the way he was doing. Those who found him gathering wood presented him before Moses and Aaron, before the entire congregation. They put him under guard. Since it was not specified what was to be done to him, what, what do we do? Here's a guy who was gathering wood on Shabbat. The Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. The entire congregation shall pelt him with stones outside the camp. Wow. Man, he could have just bought the firewood from the gas station, like we did. I mean, man, gathering the wood. Um, so the entire congregation took him outside the camp, and they pelted him to death with stones, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, I want to tell you something about this story. According to, there's a, obviously it's like a, seems like a bit of a troubling story, a very troubling story. What's going on? This guy gathered wood. He's being pelted to death by stones by the entire congregation. What is, what is happening here? So according to our tradition, this person was actually, uh, actually gave up his life to sanctify God's name. Because the people were, were saying amongst themselves that now that we're wandering for 40 years, nothing we do matters. Nothing we do matters. God has forsaken us. We're wandering. Our actions don't count. They don't matter. And we can do whatever we want. And that's it. So this guy was like, no, no, we can't. God still cares. And to prove it, he did something that he knew would be a violation of the law and therefore would, 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 would incur a strong punishment. And he did it to show that there was still an expectation from the Jewish people. That is at least one commentary on this. Let's look at Rashi very quickly. I know we're right at the time, so let's go quickly through this. Um, okay, they found uh, they found someone. Scripture speaks disparagingly of Israel, for they had kept only one Sabbath. Yet on the second Sabbath, this man came and desecrated it. Okay. They found him gathering. Um, they warned him, but he did not stop gathering even after they found him and warned him. Um, they didn't know how to put him to death, with which method he should be executed. But they did know that one who desecrates the Sabbath is put to death. They just didn't know how. So God says, pelt him with stones. Um, they took him outside. From here we derive that the place of stoning was outside and distant from the courthouse. And I'll just do my typical disclaimer. The Talmud says that if the Jewish court, the Jewish high court, put someone to death even once in 70 years, they had blood on their hands. So this is not something that happened normally. This was a very unique case that happened in the times of Moses in the desert. And again, according to many commentaries, this was this person himself putting his life, you know, on the line, not on the line, but like, you know, almost giving up his life in order to sanctify God's name. And we end with something seemingly completely different which is the laws of tzitzit, the laws of the fringes that we wear at the corner of our garments, right? Tzitzis, yeah, the fringes. Some, we wear these either in a talit, gadol, either in a large talit, prayer shawl with four corners, or in a talit katan, which is uh, a garment that can be worn underneath one shirt that also has four corners and has the fringes, and that is what many have the tradition to wear, and what I'm wearing right now to fulfill this mitzvah that we are reading about right here. So let's jump in, and this will close it out for today. Um, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and you shall say to them that they shall make for themselves fringes on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and they shall affix a thread of sky-blue wool on the fringe of each corner. We don't do, many, Most don't do that today because we don't know exactly which blue and the source of the blue wool that they were supposed to do, it, uh, uh, the dye, the source of the dye. So most don't do it. Some say they know or they have a tradition, and that's fine. But most, including Chabad, do not have blue in the one strand. The, this shall be fringes for you. And when you see it, you will remember all the commandments of the Lord to perform them, and you shall not wander after your hearts and after your eyes, after which you are going astray. So that you shall remember and perform all my commandments, and you shall be holy to your God. 
I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Essentially, we wear these fringes, these strings at the ends of our garment to remind us that we are in the employ, as it were, of Hashem, that we have an obligation. We have 613 mitzvot. By the way, if you're wondering, how do we get 613? How, how are we reminded of 613 commandments from the tzitzit? So here's an interesting um, idea. The numerology. Right? I think everyone here is familiar with the, the concept of Hebrew numerology. Every Hebrew letter is assigned a number, starting with Aleph all the way through Tav. Every letter has a number. So tzaddik, tzitzit, tzaddik is 90, yud is 10, tzaddik is 90, yud is 10, and tough is 400. So 90 plus 10 plus 90 plus 10 is 200, and plus 400 is 600. Okay, so, so the numerology of the word tzitzit is 600, plus on your uh, tzitzit, I can't pull them out so far, but there are five knots and eight strings on each of the corners. So five plus eight is 13. 13 plus 600 is 613. When you look at your tzitzis, when you look at the, at the fringe in the corner, fringes in the corner, you can be reminded, you can remind yourself of the 613 commandments. Essentially, in other words, it is a Jewish uniform. Now, many ask the question, well, why only men? Why traditionally? Why do men wear tzitzit and not women? And the traditional answer is, because what is the purpose of the mitzvah? It's to remind us of the mitzvot. And again, I, I, I'm, I'm a man, I'm a guy, I'm a man. But at the same time, I'm a guy who, me and our fellow chaperones, forgot to take away the garbage from the campsite. So guys need reminders. I'm just saying, guys need reminders. So when it comes to remembering God's mitzvot, when it comes to remembering you know, our, our, our higher task, so guys typically need more reminders, visual reminders, etc. Women... Our tradition at least tells us that women, I, I, I don't mean that in a way that I don't. Traditionally, this is the understanding that women have a deeper and more intuitive spiritual connection and don't need so many reminders. And therefore, they don't need to wear the uniform that is the tzitzit, that, uh, that, that serves as a tangible reminder. Um, and one other thing to remember is you don't have to wear a four-corner garment and wear fringes. The, the Torah specifies that when you wear a four-corner garment, you should put the fringes at the corners. But you don't have to wear the four-corner gar garment to begin with. Men have a tradition to go out of their way to wear the four-corner garment, some every day, like I said, right, like I'm wearing right now, some when they pray in synagogue. Um, but women not wearing tzitzit is not a violation of the law. If they wore a four-corner garment and didn't have fringes, that would be, that would be another, that would be something else. Um, by the way, when you wear like a poncho or something like that, you put on something that may have four corners, just got to be careful. You got to have to be mindful about that. Um, because if you're wearing a four-corner garment, biblically, it needs to have tzitzit. Um, most, most garments that most people wear do not have four corners. That but if so many ponchos have fringes? I, I don't know. What the... The ponchos have the sleeves. Like, aren't those the sleeves? sleeves? It's a good question. Would the sleeves take it out from being a four corner garment? I don't know. I don't. I don't necessarily think so, but it might. But it might. But imagine it was a vest. Imagine like a construction vest, right? You're wearing a vest or like one of these yellow, whatever, and it's got corners. If it's rounded, it's not. It, oh, just to be very clear, if it's rounded, it's not a problem. But if it has 90 degree angles, four of them, again, you're my, you gotta you know, check it out and whatever, but it, it, could, it could require tzitzit, in which case it's better not to wear it, or just take a scissors and round it out one of the corners and you're good to go. Um, okay, that said, we're not gonna do rashes on this. I, I, I feel like it's time to close it out. Um, for sure, yeah, absolutely. Um, is this the great Rashi right here? I mean, in the in the Torah, my translation is a little different. It says uh, you with the tzitzis and all that. It says uh, you shall. It says uh, you perform all the commandments. It says, but here, here's what it says: and you shall not spy after your heart and after your eyes, after which you stray. And uh, the Hebrew it says uh, the word spy is similar uh, to what it was in spot from spying out the land. Yes, the Rashi says. Yes, it says the heart and the eyes are spies for the body, procuring us sins 
procuring sins. Uh, it says the eyes see, the heart desires, and the body commits to sin. Powerful. So it's very interesting how this like how it starts off with spies at the beginning of the parsha, and now it's ending with spying. But it's spying after your spying for your heart. Beautiful, yeah. beautiful. It's a perfect symmetry. They were told It's the same word. It's about spying or scouting. And basically, um, God is reminding us, or sorry, the, the tzitzis remind us and God is instructing us that when you look at the tzitzis, remember not to, not to let your eyes look at things that you shouldn't be looking at to then desire them and then get yourself in trouble. It all begins with the eyes. Keep the eyes where they should be, and that gives us a much better shot at not ending up doing things that we shouldn't do. The eyes are a powerful window to the heart and to the soul and to, to act to our actions. And thus, we come full circle, as Mark is saying, to the beginning. The beginning, what happened? The spies saw the land. But how did they see it? There's two ways to see it. The question is, what do you see? When you, when you look at the land of Israel, what do you see? You see a great land, you see a promised land, God's gift to, to, to the Jewish people, or do you see giants and sit, fortified cities? It's like, what do you see? The eyes are a powerful tool, and that's, that's a beautiful way to end today's uh, discussion and to enter Shabbos, the power of the eyes. And, and that's why, I guess, this is one of the paragraphs of the Shema. Correct. This is the third paragraph of the Shema, yeah. Third, third, not okay. It's the third paragraph, and every time we say the word tzitzis, fringes, we give them, we give them a little kiss. This is where it's from. Yeah. This is where it's from, right here. This is where it's from. Uh, it's very powerful, and again, it reminds us of the power of our eyes, the power of sight. It's a tremendous gift, but what we see, it's hard to unsee it. Maybe that's why I didn't look at the bears. What you see, it's hard to unsee what you've seen. All right, and how do you unsee it? You've seen it. It's too late. It's going to have an imprint. And sometimes the more you want to unsee it, the more you think about it, the more, now, the more you're seeing it in your head. So we, it's a, it becomes a, a really um, strive-worthy, if we can put two words together like that, hyphenate two words, a very strive-worthy ideal to shmiras enayim, watching our eyes. Making sure that we're looking at, we're not observing things that aren't that, that aren't healthy for us on whatever level. We can keep it vague. Whatever is unhealthy, I'll let you decide. Right? Whatever is unhealthy, don't don't let that don't let that into your. Once you look at it, once you see it, once you're thinking about it, you're feeling about it, that that all the problems begin. So keep the eyes where they where they need to be. Message to to all of us to the spies. Make sure you're looking at what you're supposed to be looking at. Don't look at all the other stuff. And they didn't, and that ended up in disaster. So it's a beautiful symmetry in the Torah portion, alluded to by the same words, Lasur, Sasuru. It's beautiful. All right. Good Shabbos, everyone. Wishing you a peaceful, beautiful, and uh, a Shabbos of good eyes. You know, in baseball, when the batter takes the pitch, does say good eye. That's the point. We should all say about ourselves and each other, good eye. Right? That's also how in Australia they wish each other farewell. Good eye, mate. And with that, we end the session. I, I appreciate you guys putting up with me because I don't know how you do it. Uh, we're back on, uh, please God, Monday morning for the Torah portion. Barbecue. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Well, DPP Monday, 12 o'clock. Uh, we're going to begin the Torah portion of Shlach Korach. Uh, wow. Yeah, next week is Korach, the mutiny of Korach. That's a huge topic. These stories are very dramatic. So that's next week. And before then, everyone's invited, of course, Sunday afternoon, 5 p.m. at Chabad in town, at the back of the building. We have a barbecue for the ages. This is going to be a beautiful, beautiful event um, and celebration with just a ton of food and good drinks and good friends. And, you know, our family will be there. So it'll be a really wonderful opportunity to see everybody and to schmooze it up and to connect. So please join me then, 5 o'clock. It's basically 5 to 7, so you can feel free to come through at any point in that window. Stay as long as you wish and eat as much as you wish as well. We have plenty of food. All right, so looking forward to that and uh, to be continued. We'll see you soon.
Good Shabbos, everyone. Take care, everybody. All right. Thank you, Rabbi. Good Shabbos. Take care. Thank you.